0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. We'll be reading through verse 19 this morning. The word of the Lord. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Here ends the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter of James... James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 18 this morning. The word of our God. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Obtaining and growing in wisdom is vital for a productive Christian life. The book of Proverbs tells us wisdom is supreme. So get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. Now, it's good that we remind ourselves of that from time to time, but the truth is we don't really need to be persuaded that this is, in fact, true. We all immediately get it. Uh, A person can be fabulously wealthy and a person of great personal privilege, but if they are a fool, they will make a complete train wreck of their lives. Correspondingly, the, the poorest among us, the those among us with the least opportunity, if they have true and genuine wisdom, they will make their lives matter for good, and they will make the world around them a better place as well. And yet we have a difficulty. The difficulty with getting genuine wisdom is that there are counterfeits. And sometimes those counterfeits are calling rather loudly to us, Truth be told, the counterfeits often appear like it's a lot easier to get wisdom their way. And um, they tend to scratch precisely where we happen to be itching. Here's a question for you. I wonder if you've ever had this happen to you. I've had this happen to me. You ever go into the supermarket, or uh, that's where it happened to me, but it could be anywhere else, and you hand a cashier a $20 bill. You know, they take out the marker and they, they mark it to check the paper or they hold it up to the light, and they look for the watermark. And then they turn to you and say, I'm sorry, sir, but this money is counterfeit. That had to happen to me several years ago. And let me tell you, if it hasn't happened to you, it's a really strange feeling. Uh, For one thing, uh, I thought I had this piece of paper worth 20 bucks in my pocket, and it turned out to be utterly worthless. And as irrational as this sounds, part of me really wanted the cashier to still accept it. Right? I mean, after all, I thought it was valid, you know. Uh, but that's not how it works. Uh, this, this wealth I thought I had actually turned out to be entirely an illusion. It was worthless. It turns out counterfeit wisdom is just like that. It appears to have real value. But at the end of the day, it's useless. In fact, it's worse than useless. Because counterfeit wisdom can do a lot of destruction along the way. Those who build their lives upon counterfeit wisdom will one day wake up to discover that their house lies in ruins. Counterfeit wisdom needs to be avoided at all costs. But this leaves us with a challenge. Because even after we've been born again, it turns out that doesn't solve all our problems. Being born again leaves us as a mixed bag. By God's grace, because we have his word, we have the Holy Spirit, we are beginning to obtain and grow in true wisdom. And yet, truth be told, we still hang on to bits of worldly wisdom as well. And we do that because, in part, we believe the false promises that the worldly wisdom is offering us, that it will make our lives better, that it will make us happier in some way. And so James calls us to greater consistency in the way that we live. He's calling us to live in a way that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not simply to say I checked the box, but to be pursuing growth in this area so that increasingly the way that I talk, the way that I think, and the way that I act toward other people is shaped by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ my Lord Well, that makes good sense. I mean, after all, the queen of the south traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the the wisdom of Solomon, and one greater than Solomon is here. For in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you are in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know that truth. James is calling us to focus upon that truth so that it changes the way that we live. Now we're going to look at this morning's passage under four headings. First, wisdom is justified by her children. Second, worldly wisdom is lit on fire by hell. It's not very subtle, is it? But James wants to make the point. Third, the wisdom from above is Christ-like. And fourth, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let me give those four um, main points to you again so you have a clear idea of where we're going this morning. First, wisdom is justified, that is vindicated, by her children. Second, worldly wisdom is lit on fire by hell. Third, the wisdom from above is Christ-like. And fourth, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We begin with the fact that wisdom is justified by her children. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, if you happen to make a delicious prime rib dinner, you actually don't have to go around telling people about it. All you have to do is give them a slice and they will sing not only the praises of your meal, but your praises as a cook as well. Or or to change the image just a little bit, as the common saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And James is saying that about our wisdom in life. I mean, if you're going around telling everybody how skilled you are at things, how wise you are, how good you are, you're actually demonstrating that you probably don't have the real thing. Nevertheless, there is something in human nature, and by that I mean in all of us, that that has a genuine quest for significance. And therefore, we all want to be affirmed. We want other people to acknowledge that you're valuable, that you're good, that you belong. And that can tempt us to boast in ourselves rather than in Jesus Christ. James says, enough with the sales pitch. Let those who are genuinely wise manifest their understanding through excellent deeds done in meekness, a meekness which flows from genuine wisdom. Now that may sound obvious, but I think there are two things in these verses that really need some clarification for us so that we think about what God is telling us rightly. First, when James asks, who is wise among you? He's addressing the Christian community as a community. Uh, That is, he's not asking the question, can we pluck one of you out of this community and see how wise you are in splendid isolation, all by yourself, so we can admire you from a distance. Rather, he's saying, that the wisdom I'm talking about has to do with how you relate to each other. Um, This is a, a mistake that we commonly make in modern North American thinking. We tend to think of the wise person as the isolated individual who we kind of go to to seek out wisdom. And James is saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that you show love to each other, the way that you build each other up, the way that you model out the type of life that Christ wants us to live, and you do that with one another. James is speaking of the love which builds up, rather than the so-called knowledge which merely puffs up. Second, we need to think ourselves clear about meekness. And I'm going to say more about this than you probably could imagine from just sort of that passing reference here. But I think it's central to us understanding this idea... And it's also an issue where um, even Christians frequently get the definition wrong. James is saying that the deeds which we do need to be done in the meekness which flows from genuine wisdom. See, getting meekness right is going to help us get genuine wisdom right. right? If, if we don't understand meekness, we're not going to understand the rest of the sentence. So what is meekness? Uh, many modern translations have stopped using the word. I think they've done so, actually, for some pretty good reasons. They, they talk about gentleness and humility rather than meekness, and the reason for that is nobody uses the word meek in ordinary life anymore. Right? The only time you ever hear the word meek is in the context of a church or a religious dis- discussion. So the modern translators say, people don't use this. We need to communicate in the language people get. And secondly, there's a the problem that many people who use the word meekness in church don't understand what it means. That is, they tend to equate meekness with weakness. And that's totally contrary to the biblical idea. Nevertheless, it is, it is sort of a distinct word here. And so we ought to try to figure out what the Bible has in mind. So what is Meekness. The most authoritative lexical resource for any language in the world in all of history is a scholarly lexicon on the Greek New Testament, affectionately known as BDAG. Every pastor needs to have BDAG, certainly every scholar needs to have it as well. BDAG suggests that meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And then it gives a number of synonyms such as gentleness, humility, courtesy, and considerateness. Let me start there. What do you think of that definition? Meekness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Now, that definition can be helpful, but I want to nuance it some because I don't think it's sufficient. In fact... I think you could adopt that definition and miss out on what genuine meekness is in your life. Because all you do is say, I'm not that important. I'm not that big a deal. And that's not biblical meekness. And you can see that simply by asking these questions. First, who was the meekest man on the face of the earth when the Lord led Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land? And second, who's the meekest man in all of history? Well, the answer to the first question is it's Moses. And the answer to the second question is obvious. It's Jesus. And uh, to say the least, these were not unimportant people. How does the Bible talk about the meekness of Moses? The story in Numbers chapter 12 reveals that Moses is called the meekest man on the face of the earth because he trusted in God to defend him against the wicked, instead of using his own power to vindicate himself. That is, Moses bowed the knee to God. Right, He was humble toward God. Moses did not think little of himself. He knew he was in the right. Go back and read Numbers 12. He knew he was in the right. He knew he was God's chosen instrument to lead the entire nation of Israel. His meekness wasn't that he thought lowly of himself. It's that he entrusted himself, body and soul, to his faithful Savior. He entrusted himself to God and was willing to submit to the Lord's will in the Lord's timing. And even if we set aside the greatness and importance of Moses, we couldn't possibly do this with Jesus Christ. And and we have to acknowledge Jesus realizes how important he is. He insists on how important he is. He tells people that unless you build your life on my teaching, your life is going to run into shambles. When the storms of life blow, your house is going to be a ruin, both in this age and, more critically, in the age to come. He tells us that unless we believe that he is from God, in fact, that he is God, we will die in our sins. And that your eternity, the eternity of all humanity, depends on people taking Jesus at his word. Beloved, that is not a low opinion of himself. Right? It's Totally accurate, of course. But it's not about Jesus being lowly. And and, and so here's the problem. If we assume that meekness is about thinking less of ourselves... We have to realize that Jesus didn't go around saying, Ah, shucks, I'm just another rabbi doing the best that I can. And yet Jesus was the meekest man who ever lived. And he is our model for meekness. By God's grace, we are to become more and more like Jesus. Here's why I'm belaboring this point. Yes, I know I'm belaboring this point, but I'm doing it intentionally, and for what I hope is a good reason. Many Christians, and this includes many Reformed Christians seem to think that meekness and humility are about openly acknowledging just how bad we are. The more we talk about how bad we are, the more we demonstrate our meekness. But beloved, that would have left Jesus with no opportunity to demonstrate his meekness at all. So you have to nuance that definition that we get from even the most authoritative lexicon that's ever been created. The opposite of pride and boasting in ourselves is not confessing how bad we are. Let me say that because some of you have gotten on the track of you know, um, talking about total depravity and you think that that's somehow the center of the Christian life. It's an important truth that apart from God's grace, we do not have even an island of goodness in us. But God is not calling you to focus on your sin. He's calling you to focus on Christ's sufficiency. The opposite of pride and boasting in ourselves is not confessing how bad we are. The opposite of pride and boasting in ourselves is bowing the knee before almighty God and seeking his glory. Seeking his glory in all things. And it is genuinely loving our neighbors as ourselves so that like Jesus, increasingly it could be said of us, a bruised reed we will not break, and a smoldering wick we will not put out. This is not moralism. Um, you cannot develop these character traits by buying um, you know, a book on Amazon.com, 30 days to a meeker you, and putting the techniques into practice. That will not work. This transformation comes by the work of the Holy Spirit, and it comes by the work of the Holy Spirit as we celebrate the love, the mercy, and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and as we attend diligently to the ordinary means of grace. I'll say more about that a little bit later. Moralism will not change your heart, nor will it change your life, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit will. Once we grasp this, I think verse 14 falls right into place. James writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. See, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are not merely bad character traits. They reveal that such a person is really seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God. Right? They've de-centered God in the universe and put themselves at the center as though everything else revolves around them. Now, By the way, here's a paradoxical bit of wisdom. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition come from thinking that we are not getting our due. Isn't that it? Right? People aren't honoring me the way that they should. I'm not getting ahead as... Well, as I should financially in life, my boss is ripping me off. Right? And so we get selfish ambition and bitter envy. But why? Why do we care so much about getting our due? The issue is is because you're significant. You were created in God's image. That's true. But then we think that somehow, if people would just honor us more, or we'd be a greater success in the eyes of the world and other people would want to be around us. We'd be accepted in every group because people want to spend time with us. We even foolishly imagine that people would love us if that were true. But beloved, that's largely a lie. Here, ask yourself this simple question. Who would you rather be around? A person who is gentle and giving, who is seeking the glory of God, or a person who is regularly trying to convince you of just how impressive they really are. Well, that's not really a trick question. I mean, at least for Christians, we all want to be around the person who's gentle and giving and seeking the glory of God. See, it turns out that genuine meekness is actually a really attractive character trait. And so even on the world's own terms, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition don't produce the goods. So, James is asking this appointed question. Do you imagine yourself to be wise? Great. I mean, wisdom is important. True wisdom is a wonderful blessing from God. But you better check to see what sort of fruit your life is actually producing. Are you self seeking? Are you doing deeds in meekness which flow from genuine wisdom, which is from above? Now, the truth is, you're going to look at your heart, you're going to see a mixed bag. That, that's good. But you've got to make sure which side of that you're feeding here. Don't pretend you have genuine wisdom if what you're actually seeking is your own glory. Wisdom is justified by her children. And we shouldn't imagine that the vain wisdom which flows from pride and worldliness is simply based on a misunderstanding or a lack of information. Look at verse 15 with me. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, if you were with us last week, you will recall the striking way that James described the unsanctified tongue. James writes, And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's not the language we normally use even in the church anymore. There it is in our Bibles. James is saying, I want you to understand this is not like we talk about a slip of the tongue He's saying the untamed tongue is an unruly fire, and it's set on fire by hell itself. That is, it's expressing the very rebellion that Satan has against God. And if you want to really be shocked, read through the Gospels, and you'll see that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, calls those who were critiquing him children of Satan. It's that last cause set on fire by hell that I particularly want you to focus on. Worldly wisdom is not simply misguided, it is an expression of a worldview that is set set against God, and of which Satan himself is both the exemplar and the instigator. Worldly wisdom is set on fire by hell. So we've got to ask what is worldly wisdom? Now, perhaps the most important thing you need to hear about worldly wisdom is the very first thing I'm going to say. Worldly wisdom is not the wisdom of unbelievers. Right? They are not the same thing. Worldly wisdom does not um, mean that every person who's not a Christian only goes around selfishly thinking, but the whole world rotates around them all the time. In fact, your non-Christian friends and neighbors have a lot of genuine wisdom for you to get. Right? how to build houses well, uh, how to cook well, how to manage nutrition and exercise and how much you get of that and so on. Right? God has dispersed wisdom throughout all of humanity. It is not wisdom but foolishness when Christians reject wisdom that comes from someone not of their group, right? not recognizing that God has given true wisdom to people all over the earth. And you can go back and read, you know, the Greek philosophers if you want. You can just see on Google somebody that has a really good guidance for how you manage your health care or probably better talk to your doctor about that, right? Dr. Google makes a lot more mistakes than your actual trained physician does. But there's an immense amount of genuine wisdom that unbelievers have, and it is there for their good and for ours as well. So what is worldly wisdom? Worldly wisdom is the opposite of humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, confident that he will exalt you in due time. It is the opposite of meekness. The meekness that we talked about earlier, a meekness which seeks to glorify God and to genuinely love our neighbors. Simply put, worldly wisdom is looking out for number one and strangely enough thinking that you are him. Right? Worldly wisdom is putting your wants and your honor at the center of the universe as though everyone and everything exists for your benefit. To put the matter bluntly, worldly wisdom is idolatry. It's putting yourself in the place of God. Now, in theory, avoiding such worldly wisdom might appear to be easy. I mean, after all, you're coming to church here today. You're believers. Or at least you're very interested in Christianity. It might appear easy to avoid such worldly wisdom, but in reality, it is quite challenging because you are surrounded by the worldview of worldly wisdom all the time, and you're bombarded with messages. I mean, some of them are kind of trivial, you know. Uh, Restaurants, you deserve a break today, but that's worldly wisdom. Or, you know, we're going to sell makeup. You deserve it, right? That's worldly wisdom. That's not the wisdom from above. You are worth it. Let me give you just two illustrations of how this can infect uh, our world, Is actually how it does infect our world in many ways. The first illustration is from the academic world. In the academic world, even in seminaries, professors and wannabe professors are expected to prepare a CV, a curriculum vitae. A curriculum vitae is the racetrack of their life, as it were. Now, if you've never seen one of these from someone that's been doing this for a while, it might shock you. There are curriculum we tie that are 8, 10, 15 pages long that list not just the books the professor has written, but every article they've ever written, every conference they ever spoke at, right? Um, it, it's kind of a strange thing in one way because nobody can really imagine that all of that's really good stuff. You'd think they'd want to hide some of it. But it actually comes from an ancient pagan idea. It's from the Roman Empire, where the Roman pagans, I'm saying that quite bluntly, they were pagans about this, they viewed their goal in life was to heap up honors for yourself, get other people to honor you, and that was the greatest achievement. It was even considered totally justified to plunge the Roman Empire into war, where hundreds of thousands of people are going to die if it would be good for your honor. Isn't it strange that 20-some-odd centuries later, the academic world still does this? Now, I, I grant, at least I hope, that most professors, particularly Christian professors, realize that this isn't something to take all that seriously. But you know, seminaries still install with great pomp and circumstance distinguished professors, And here's the good news for those of you who have regular jobs. There is no such thing as the Mary French Rockefeller Distinguished Plumber at Roto-Rooter. You will not be tempted in this way. But at one of my alma maters, there's a Mary French Rockefeller Distinguished Professor of New Testament. You get a title. You get robes. People all look up to you. How difficult it is, therefore, to remain humble in that sort of environment. And we might think it's not really that big of a danger, but what I want to encourage you today is to consider that perhaps it is. To ask not what someone else is doing in the academic world, but what's going on in your life where you're seeking to make sure that you are getting your fair share of honors. Beloved, that is a very dangerous ground to be treading upon. So let me publicly apply this wisdom to myself. Uh, From time to time, I get contacted... Um, normally by people that I don't even know, who want to tell me how I can make more of a name for myself as a minister. And I always have to write back and tell them, it's not my name that I'm trying to lift up. As Count Zinzendorf wisely put it, the pastor's calling is to preach Christ, to die, and to be forgotten. That's simple. Preach Christ... Die and be forgotten. And every one of you can tweak that just a little bit for your own lives. Your calling is to live for Christ, to die, and to be forgotten. And beloved, you can do that with confidence and faith, knowing for certain that you will never be forgotten by God. See, that's the point. Whose praise are we seeking? Thankfully, as children of the living God... God himself will one day say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, the academic world might not resonate with all of you. uh, So let me give you one other example of worldly wisdom from popular culture. Um, Many of you have probably at least heard the name of Oscar Wilde, a very famous Irish poet and playwright. Um, Oscar Wilde was, uh, was quite famous for his wit, particularly his witty put-downs by the way, are very popular among young men in America, probably all over the world. It's kind of like how you test out your, your intellectual muscles to show how quick-witted you can be. So one day, Oscar Wilde uh, had an acquaintance of his come up to him and said, uh, Hey, Oscar, you know, the other day I, I passed right by your house. And Oscar Wilde said, Thank you. We laugh, maybe. It's okay to laugh a little bit if you don't know who the people are. Right? So glad you passed by my house. But you think about that, that's worldly wisdom. Its purpose was to exalt Oscar Wilde as being really witty, good with words, at the cost of putting someone else down. As I said, you know, this is a real temptation for young men. Maybe some of you who are not so young but imagine that you still are, right? And so you ought to ask yourself, am am I just having fun, good-naturedly, with people that I care about? Or am I putting people down in the hopes of lifting myself up. Beloved, Jesus shows us a much better way. As the Apostle Paul commands us in his letter to the Philippians, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was by very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, that is the wisdom which is from above. That is the mind which we are commanded to have in ourselves. This is the sort of genuine wisdom from above that produces a harvest of righteousness. By contrast, look at verse 16 and consider the type of fruit that worldly wisdom produces. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now here's the thing. You can't mix and match. See, you can't choose the wisdom of the world and end up with the fruits of the wisdom from above. And that's a temptation we all want to think. That somehow we could divorce the consequences from the actions. But you cannot choose the wisdom from below and end up with the fruits of the wisdom from above. Wisdom is known by our children, and worldly wisdom is lit on fire by hell. But the really key thing to grasp is that the wisdom from above is not an abstract concept. Wisdom from above is about trusting and loving Jesus Christ so that by God's grace the Holy Spirit will conform us more into his likeness. Look at verse 17 with me. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Now you could do a detailed study of those seven terms. Actually, it would be a Productive thing to do, to sit down and even just spend 20 or 30 minutes thinking about these terms and asking whether or not that's true in your life. But I actually think there's a danger with that. You you can start thinking that there's this list of abstract concepts, and that's what the wisdom of above is about. But actually, the wisdom from above is about Jesus. Actually, this very language of coming down from above I think should trigger us to think about two interrelated gifts. First, James harkens back to a similar choice of words in chapter 1, verse 17. Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So while we pursue wisdom, we are called to pursue wisdom, we don't produce it. We receive it as a gift from God. It's the gift to us from the Father of lights. And second, we should immediately think in terms of Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Naturally, these two things are inseparably intertwined. Um, After all, all the promised blessings of God that you receive, you receive in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And astonishingly, God has predestined us that we would be conformed into his likeness. And even now, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us through the word so that we are becoming more like Jesus. The wisdom from above is Christ-like. And we receive this gift union with Christ. Well, where does this all lead? This genuine wisdom which the Lord gives us in Christ transforms the way that we live so that, like Christ, we become peacemakers who sow a harvest of righteousness. Look at verse 18 with me. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make Peace. God has given us the unspeakable privilege of taking part in his work of reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. I mean, quite obviously, God doesn't need us for this. But isn't it amazing that he uses people like us, who are a little more of in dirt, in order to be part of his instruments to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. Christ came as the Prince of Peace, He reconciled us to himself through the cross that we would be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And Having been justified, we have peace with God. Indeed, the Bible says that Jesus is our peace. Now, naturally enough, you and I are not the ones who bring about this reconciling work. Um, That's not your calling. Almighty God has a strict limit of one Savior per universe, and you and I are not him. Nevertheless, we are called not merely to be peaceable, but to be peacemakers. Let me say that again. We are called not merely to be peaceable, but to be peacemakers. When we display the true meekness which flows from genuine wisdom... We stop trying to get people to think highly of us, and we start trying to get them to think highly of Jesus Christ. As we point people to Jesus Christ, we become instruments in God's hands for bringing about their peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This particular work is so important that Jesus gives it this benediction Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. But that's not all. I want to remind you the gospel is not just how God reconciles unbelievers to himself, the gospel is for Christians too. It's for all of us. Having the gospel at the pulsating center of our thinking will lead us to working hard that estranged brothers and sisters will be reconciled in Christ as well. Jesus reveals just how significant a priority this is in his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. There are Lord commands, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That'll be easy, Right? No, it will not be easy. But then we remember that Christ established peace through his own cross. It was costly. Beloved, sometimes it's going to be costly for you to be a peacemaker too. But it will also be glorious. It is God's calling upon our lives. So wisdom is justified by our children. Worldly wisdom is lit on fire by hell. The wisdom from above is Christ-like. And blessed are the peacemakers... For they shall be called the sons of God. But there's one more thing we need to fix in our thinking. The wisdom from above cannot be obtained by the means from below. This true and life-transforming wisdom comes by grace through faith. It comes from meditating upon God's word and seeking the Holy Spirit's power to put it into practice. This wisdom comes from a consistent and diligent use of the ordinary means of grace. And I, as your pastor, can tell you my own experience, this is a tough sell in our current age because it's not the slightest bit flashy. But I trust by now you understand that that's part of the point. The wisdom from below is flashy. The wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That is, the wisdom from above is like Jesus. This is the only wisdom that will produce a harvest of righteousness. This is the wisdom that pleases God. And so, beloved, in all you're getting, make sure you get wisdom. But make sure you're getting the real thing. Amen.